Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 166 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back Babur Osden, founder and CEO of Mana, and now vice president at Spark Cognition, building the world's leading AI platforms that drive reliability, efficiency, security, and automation for industrial and global enterprises. Babur co-founded Mana and served as its CEO for eight years through its acquisition by Spark Cognition. Prior to Mana, Babur held CMO, COO, and CEO roles at several tech startups. Recognized by the World Economic Forum as a technology pioneer, Babur holds an executive MBA degree from Rice University and a BA degree in computer science from the University of Texas at Austin. Babur, welcome back to our Digital Thread podcast. Thank you, Ken. It's great to be back. It is. It is. And my, so we're sitting at podcast number 166 and way back at podcast number 56. So May 1st of 2019, for those paying attention, you gave us a good overview of really the idea of a digital twin for business process. So I'm really looking forward to fast forwarding the conversation, both with the acquisition by Spark Cognition, but to see how you've really scaled up on that initial promise. So I always like to start off to ask a bit about one's own digital thread. In other words, the one or more thematic threads that define their digital industry journey. What would you consider to be your digital thread? Well, I think mine was attempting to do things that had very little or no precedence. So it is always to educate from ground up and top down of your intended audiences. And it's not doing something that exists, but doing it better or faster or cheaper, but doing something that did not exist before. So throughout my career, I always found myself, I guess by design and by preference, always in companies and startups attempting to do that. And and Mana, we attempted to do the same thing is to bring components of AI capabilities into the mix of critical industrial operations. And and Spark Cognition, now we scale that in a global scale on multiple different industries. So I noted in your bio that you describe yourself as passionate about industrial digital transformation. Tell us, what does the phrase mean to you? Phrase to me is that, of course, we as the software vendors, and I'll just call it as a vendor, we can only achieve things in these early paradigm changes. If only we have trailblazers at our target customers. So it's not just us, but I end up working with people at organizations who eventually would become my customer or they will remain as prospect customers. It's just to see those trailblazers, to work with them, to exchange ideas with them, to go into trenches with them, because we're there with our tool and with our technology is to help them succeed. So my passion is to be 
among the midst of people like those early trailblazers who are trying to bring to their giant corporations and through them to their industries first taste of adopting AI. So that's why my passion is to work with a group of trailblazers, be in the first early waves of this adoption. Well, it sounds like a way to describe your own early professional journey. So you've had a strong track record of leadership successes even prior to founding Mana. I went all the way back to the beginning of, I believe, your profile and noted that you were the CEO of the most valuable internet company in Turkey. So that's a very interesting starting point in terms of trailblazing. So tell me, over all of that time, what were some of the early leadership observations that ultimately led you to founding Mana and the industrial IoT space? Yeah, I mean, in mid-1990s, me and my team and our investors, our board were trying to put together an internet company that would attempt to do what America Online did throughout late 80s and early 90s successfully on propriety environment and do the entire same thing on World Wide Web. So that was sort of our ambition. But in 1994, 1995, even hiring a person to our company called Super Online, there's no precedence of internet. I can't even show people what it looks like. Or I, when I go and pitch to a customer and convince them that they need to have a web presence, there's not much to show. So it's all about whether it's your employees, whether your investors, whether your management, whether your board, whether your customers, partners. It is convincing them this near future, something coming, and it's so big that it's going to be equal to discovery of electricity or, or fire or wheel or alphabet. That is what I think was my luck, is attempting to do my first entrepreneurial foray into an environment, well, try to tell Turkey, but about the same time to the world, is that there is this big thing, internet coming, and it's going to change our lives as consumers and in businesses. So that's sort of my beginning of my threat, digital threat, is right in the midst of the birth of the World Wide Web. What a good starting point to be at. And in many cases, interesting as we've seen early entrepreneurs, they didn't have the infrastructure entrepreneurs have today, just even simply in the digital infrastructure and tools and technologies, but also in the, I'll call it a organizational infrastructure, remote working and collaboration tools and things that make it so much easier today. So when you rolled your own company back then, you had to do pretty much everything, right? Getting the office, rolling your own communications protocols hardware, software, the whole stack. And it has gotten progressively easier because we've been able to build solutions on that. But I think that physical muscle you developed having to early on develop all those pieces make you a better entrepreneur down the line, right? That's correct. I think one thing one learns instinctively is that once you're on a mission and you're locked into bringing something new or solving some chronic problem, Anything between now and that future looks to you solvable, irrelevant of the depth of the problem. And sometimes they're not solvable, but it is that belief and faith that you and the team that you could put together and collectively you and your customers and partners, you can go over those humps. I think that's sort of what I always look at myself and also look at the other entrepreneurs that I admire and I follow. It's that have that singular mission to get somewhere but don't accept any problem or failure or no's as a reason to quit on the way there. 
Yeah, well said. And certainly an attribute we've seen of a lot of early trailblazers and some of the best startup leaders as well. So that obviously served you well uh, in terms of founding Mana. So developers of a platform that, as you guys described, enabled organizations to encode their subject matter expertise and data into computational knowledge graphs to solve complex business problems. So tell me, what inspired you to create Mana and what were some of your key use cases and wins? Yeah, Donald and I, Donald is the other co-founder of Mana. And when we started embarked on the journey, we looked at, and this sort of in 2011, 2012, 2013 timeframe, the formation of the idea and a company and our first product and technology direction, the world was going through, at least United States was going through this big data paradigm or big data hype, if you may remember, almost 10 years back. And it was all about the almost religious belief that if you can bring data from all of your silos and put them in one place, and then using that place, you can attempt to solve problems that previously was not easy to solve or not cost effective to solve. So when we looked at and we saw that all of these data stores will eventually be in a data platform somewhere on the cloud. All the data silos of an enterprise will find a way to pump their data into this central environment. And then we said to ourselves, but the most important data is neglected. Everybody is talking about the data that's stored in a disk environment, if I may use that old term. But the most important data in AI sits in people's heads. It's not in the disk. It's not the data data. It's the know-how. It's the experience. How do we bring that experience mesh with the data? Because data alone does nothing. Data science alone does nothing. Software developers alone do nothing. So the most important, we thought, the, the driver of Amana's beginning was if we can bring the know-how of an organization and its experience of its subject matter expertise and digitize them and de-silo it as the other data is being attempted to de-silo and bring them into a one framework and describe that framework as a computational knowledge graph and build a product and tool it, we thought that we would be at a place we could bridge or across the chasm of the subject matter experience and truckloads of data and then they can then attempt to tackle big business problems. That sort of was the foundation of Mana, was saying that a lot of companies do a lot of work bringing the data in, curating it, shaping it, but we saw that nobody was doing anything to bring the other most important data that sits between two ears of people in a large organization, and you've got tens of thousands of people with a subject matter expertise in large organizations that we said, let's bring, let's us focus to bring that data into the mix. You obviously had a lot of believers because as I count, you had eight strategic investors in MANA, Intel Capital, Chevron Technology Ventures, Saudi Aramco Energy Ventures, Shell Technology Ventures, Accenture Ventures, China International Capital Corporation, Sino Capital, and finally GE Ventures, which we love because of course we have Mike Dolbeck. But that is a pretty amazing list of companies, not only to obviously to be potential clients and customers of Mana, but also to believe so much in it that they invested. Let me ask, what was your goal in taking on so many strategic investors and in practice? How did that work out for you? Well, at the beginning, the path that we went at Mana mainly with strategic investors 
again, is one of those serendipitous things that happens at a company. And when we were attempting to raise money in the traditional, most well-known traditional venture capital path, I couldn't attract a traditional venture capital. I guess pursuing heavy industries, trying to build an enterprise software for heavy industrial consumption, sales cycles naturally in those industries, and a number of factors made us outside the investment norms of the traditional venture capital. But totally the opposite reaction that we were getting from the corporate venture world in 2013 and 14 and 15 timeframe. And mind you, at about the same timeframe, there was an almost tenfold increase in the corporate venture funds that operated out of United States, if you remember. So they themselves were also making significant forays into expanding their rich investment doctrines into the startup scene. So we started, we saw an interest, we had audiences that could understand what we were trying to say and how we were trying to go about it in the corporate venture capital world, because these people mainly came from the operating arms of their mother company and knew the problems, understood the problems, understood the challenges, and they were in a far better position to judge a company like MANA, whether it can work or not, and et cetera. It's interesting when you fast forward, if you think now a company with the profile of MANA and the traction of it between SPACs and private equity firms coming down you know, to later stage rounds and a number of more traditional VCs now kind of waking up that you know there is something interesting in the industrial space, you certainly would be in a different world if you were to cast the company today. But in some sense, you're absolutely right. The corporate venture capitalists at the time filled a gap in the market, and I offer they still do. And in many cases, we find companies do better taking on that investment in the sense that they get customers, they get partners, they yeah. get advisors, they get value chain partners. Yeah. I mean, on and on and on, right? Versus yeah. just I, money, right? Totally. So in the corporate venture that you listed, that put their money and time and effort and passion into MANA, it was uh, priceless. The doors that they opened in their own mother companies, it was very qualified, very intimate, and there was no other way to break into those organizations if we could not go through their venture arm. And these were not just introductions, but these were truly almost like people on our payroll but happened to work <laughs> yep. for those venture capital firms. Uh, yep. It's just doing our sales and marketing within those massive organizations and getting us in front of the right audiences, getting us an opportunity to pitch our product or our company, getting us trials, pilots, and getting us contracts eventually. So it was extremely valuable. Money can buy that. Well, you must have done something right because, as most of us know, you exited the company to spark cognition in June of this year. So I see you now describe the integrated platform as organizing domain know-how, human expertise, machine intelligence, and data into digital knowledge to assist subject matter experts at critical business decisions. So I can certainly see the part that you brought to that and could guess at what Spark Cognition has done as well. But let me ask, how has the integration really helped you scale up your initial value proposition? I mean, tremendously. So if I could step back and Spark Cognition 
has a really a beautiful vision and a very strong way to pursue that vision is basically seeing that about over a hundred trillion dollars worth of existing economical infrastructure on our planet in number of industries have to eventually transition themselves to be driven or to be managed by intelligent software. But you can't change all of this hardware overnight. So this change needs to come through software, through AI, specifically understanding this installed base of this massive infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, I talk about infrastructure as machinery and infrastructure as global, say, operations, for example, shipping, logistics, or things in that scale. So very methodically, how do you innovate in AI space? And how do you come up with novel approaches to AI so that the infrastructure, the existing infrastructure can benefit from AI and you don't need to wait another 10 years for a state-of-the-art infrastructure to get it. So this has been sort of the birth mission of Amir, our CEO and founder, and then tackle that environment with providing a unique AI environment a company. We have over 120 patents in the AI space adding three to four new patents every quarter. So a very specific novel research is done in the space of AI serving this world. And then we have products to provide this AI-driven cyber defense to this infrastructure, AI-driven anomalies detection, AI-driven maintenance environment, AI-driven optimization environment, and AI-driven mobility environment, but all coming from the same base, the core AI base. With MANA acquisition, we brought to that base a knowledge representation so that the people, the SME's point of view, also become part of that managing AI, deploying AI into that infrastructure. These are the people who manage and operate that infrastructure. So it's been a very nice compliment. And I will also salute Spark Cognition leadership. They have made the acquisition process, pre-acquisition, during acquisition, and post-acquisition. They went out of their way to welcome the incoming team. Those of us who've been acquired or acquired a few times in the past know that that period is extremely sensitive, and they've done a great job in that respect. It certainly sounds like it. And having been part of a number of acquisitions, whether the companies we've invested in that have been acquired or you know companies we've been a part of, you're absolutely right that integration, those first couple months are absolutely critical to realizing the full value, the synergy in that regard. Let me ask a question relative kind of to the synergies of the platform then, and that is, how do you know when an organization is ready to adopt your solution? And what best practices have you seen in realizing that potential value? The question, how do you know someone's ready, is probably the holy grail, <laughs> if anyone answers that question. For prospect customer or prospect customers, is probably keep it to themselves. How do they know that? But, but <laughs> well, you said trailblazer earlier, yeah, I heard you, so yeah. you've already let so up. <laughs> interesting thing. So, of course, let's say in the last 10 years, when the large industrial companies in a number of different spaces attempting to digitize or pursue a digital transformation journey, 
they went through a number of trials, organizational changes, creating chief digital officer roles, those roles in conflict with CTOs and CIOs, a lot of internal politics these organizations have to go through. Where do you accommodate the chief digital office, etc.? We all know those. And that was an important thing. And we've seen in some organizations three versions of it, some of them two, but that kind of is settled now. So now most of there is a best practice now where the digital initiatives will be owned, meaning scope-wise, budgetary-wise, and management and leadership-wise. So this is sort of settling. Second is that naturally to be able to attempt to do things digitally, you need data. And that data 10 years ago set in places that did not lend itself to this type of scrutiny. So we've seen now a number of versions from starting with data lakes to current cloud representation of all the data. So that world is matured as well. So that's the second track. And the third is still in the process. This third leg still in the process is that these companies, as they were bringing their data in one place, and then as they were trying to figure out who owns the digital transformation initiatives, and the third leg was doing lots of proof of concept trials, POCs, and left behind a graveyard of POCs. But the people learned how to do a trial or how to skip a trial, go directly to the real thing. So there's a lot of learnings on the third leg of doing how to do or how not to do a POC in a certain space. And the fourth is talent. So companies now, 10 years ago, it was rather hard to find talent in any aspect of managing, say, a digital transformation project, if I may use that term, whether it's technical, whether it's data science, whether it's project management, but that sort of settling. So these four legs, the ownership, where in an organization, these digital roadmaps are owned and executed, and budgeted, uh, where uh, the data and uh, how to do trials and the talent. Now it's all these four legs are far more firm than they were 10 years ago. So today I would answer this question 10 years ago differently, but today we basically look at what level of maturity a prospect is in these four legs. And then naturally looked at whether the things they want to, they're talking to us, are they really budgeted? or they're just a curiosity or an R&D experiment. So those are the kind of tools me and my colleagues use to look at opportunities to see whether they are real and if they are real, how close they may be, that we can work together with the prospect client and then help them get to their target. You no doubt have heard in my other podcasts, it's a pretty standard question I ask, and it's largely driven by the fact that many of us are technology driven and ultimately the real product market fit test is always how well are you qualifying your end users and what patterns are you seeing in terms of how they adopt. You came up with what has been so far the most disciplined answer I've ever heard from anybody. So kudos to you on that one. I like the four leg answer that you came up with. And I imagine you guys must have a great qualification process in terms of sales for that. You also notice on the 57th podcast that I had hair. Now I don't. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, the industry scars per se at that point. So you've been doing this, I would say, industrial IoT analytics area for about 10 years, if I'm doing my math correctly. And I know probably longer given some of the work you did before. But 
putting your prognosticator hat on for a minute, if you were to kind of now look forward for the next five years, what would you predict relative to industrial IoT and probably more importantly, the analytics around that? I think it is becoming sort of mainstream now in many of the companies I kind of started talking 10 years ago. Today, it is sort of like a mainstream part of their technological or information technology tool set and information technology talent set. It's no longer a trial. It's no longer, let's give it a try. If it works, we go. This is now a serious, a very serious budgetary item, a very serious C leadership and a board level leadership to pursue. And and companies, at least the ones that I know I've been in touch over the last half a decade, have done significant advances in these four legs that I just talked a few minutes ago. So the beauty of it is that digital itself, which we are seeing, is actually changing the definition of IT divisions. To me, really, at the end of the day, if a paradigm and the tools and the methodologies to use those tools are not adopted by an IT organization, that paradigm never becomes a mainstream in that company. IT is the key. We know that it moves slowly. We know that they are conservative, but there are reasons for that. But if you get into an IT, if the digital and the IT becomes digital and digital becomes IT, that means the driving context of that IT organization is digital transformation. So, and of course, a very single big courageous leg is the cloudification, moving these massive organizations from on-prem way of running their IT to a cloud, either private or a public cloud. That itself is a massive mental, operational, and budgetary transformation. And then once you do that, the other steps become easier to adapt and swallow, to move your data in one place, because that's why you're going to cloud, not just to save money. And once you move your data in one place, that means you also tackle all that legal challenges in a company. These are not just technical, is that one division is operating out of Australia, let's say the other division operating out of Canada, but they're all same company. They need to bring their data together. There are legal challenges to do that because of different countries, different data rules. So with cloud, you pass that major technical challenge of de-siloing. And then once the data starts coming in, you're passing that legal challenge. So your IT organization learns, your legal department learns, and then your business department, business ownership says, oh, it's no longer my data. It's all of our data. If I put my data, other people put their data. We all benefit from all of our experiences. So this learning truly goes up along that stage as you build these four legs. And then the change becomes really a day-to-day operation. So when I look back today, this is no longer convincing someone to do it. It's basically the pace at which they're doing it. Speaking of trends, Mana was proudly a Silicon Valley company. I know you spent a lot of time in Palo Alto there. I noted that you've joined the great, as it's called, Texodus, and that you are now in Houston with uh, Spark Cognition, of course, being in Austin. How has this worked out for you personally and professionally? Well, first of all, I must say the food in Houston is outstanding. Uh, that's, <laughs> I have to tell you. And of course, Houston is not a stranger to me. I've lived here 14, 15 years ago before me and my wife moved to Palo Alto area. 
And so I know the city, I love the city, but the real reason, me coming back to Houston is about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, the reality at which due to our industrial focus at MANA, among that focus, energy and oil and gas companies playing a significant portion of that, I needed to be very close to my customers and potential customers and the industry, the cottage industry around those customers. And Houston provided that opportunity in one city, in one very large city. You are really 10 minutes to one hour drive distance to any possible oil and gas company on the planet. And I personally served as a CEO at MANA, but I also carried the chief salesman head. And I love doing that. I find energy when I am in front of customers and potential customers in their offices, not through a Zoom call. And so Houston was a no-brainer. I just needed to be amidst the customers and potential customers to grow our business. Well, you had me at the food, uh, (laughs) but I absolutely love the idea of the chief sales officer in that regard. And certainly the energy you get from being in front of customers. You know, closing, I always like to ask the question, where do you find your personal inspiration? And clearly we know, you know, in the sales process, but are there books or podcasts or people that you would recommend that we should get to know? Well, my work takes so much of my time and in that time, so much of my attention and uh, creativity, if I may say. And when I read, nowadays I listen my books or listen podcasts. I listen interviews like the ones that you guys are running very successfully of people of achievements from business to science, politics, military, etc. I find I cherish people's journey and hearing from them is very valuable. And I'm a sci-fi fan and space fan, astronomy fan. So I listen podcasts and books about cosmology, planetary discoveries, the commercial exploitation of orbit and the space, things in that nature. Very fitting for a start of a conversation that started off with Trailblazer. (laughs) Space is the final frontier. So, Bobbert, thank you for sharing this time and these insights with us today. Thank you, Ken. It's great talking to you. As well. I appreciate you coming back after doing the earlier podcast with us as well. And it's been really nice to touch base with you post the acquisition. So this has been Bobber Osden, founder and CEO of MANA, and now vice president at Spark Cognition, a man leading industrial digital transformation, shall we say, a trailblazer. So thank you for listening. And please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.